What's up, Bow Rush listeners? I'm Travis Stowe, your host of the Bow Rush Podcast, and today you're listening to episode 24. Okay, who doesn't like Jack Bauer? I had to add it, since how this is the 24th episode, it just seemed to make sense. But let's get back to the show. If you've been following the calendar, you would be noticing that each day we're getting that much closer to the opening of bow season. Are you excited? I know I am. Now, that being said, let's be honest with ourselves. Are you all dialed in? If not, have you ever done paper tuning or modified French tuning? Well, if you haven't, well, guess what? You're in luck because we brought on Tommy Hill and he discussed with us why he feels paper tuning has an appropriate role still to play for even the new bows today. Now, if you do any type of research, you'll be surprised how controversial this topic really is. I was blown back by how many people were just going at it saying it's a waste of time. You don't need to do it anymore, especially for the new bows. There's other methods. But if you listen to what Tommy has to say, really, paper tuning can not only help you find what's going wrong with your bow, it could also help find elements that are maybe outside the control of the bow itself. And so he's got some great information, a wealth of knowledge. So if this is something you might be interested in, take a listen to this. You might learn a thing or two, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Let's get the show on. Is this Tommy? This is. Hey, this is Travis. Hey, Travis. Tommy, as you know, that archery season is coming around. Uh, we got a few weeks left, and a lot of people are dialing everything in when it comes to making that perfect shot. And one of the things that has come up, the idea of what paper tuning is about, and surprisingly, I didn't realize it would be kind of a heated topic uh, when I was uh, searching for this information, but I was curious to find out the the inner workings, the understanding of paper tuning, possibly how to set one up, and some general facts about it. But uh, when doing the research, someone introduced me to you as you might be someone to reach out to. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate the vote of confidence. Uh, we, well, I guess I should say paper tuning is pretty controversial topic in that a lot of guys don't believe in it. In fact, if you get on YouTube, you can find several videos where uh, guys who are dealers and reps and things like that will actually say how it's completely unnecessary in today's modern bows because of the offset riser. Paper tuning originally, well, I guess in the compound bow era, has been something that guys have been doing because the older model bows didn't necessarily have a true center shot. So you had that archer's paradox that you had to work around, which uh, what that is, for somebody that may not know, is the arrow's bending, actually, as it goes around the riser, because the string and the the riser is actually kind of in the way of the string. So the the arrow has to move around the string to get on path. I didn't know that. that. (laughs) That's actually kind of where the whole paper tuning thing really gets going. So so to kind of counteract that, what what we would do is you would originally, you'd move your rest out to try to get, uh, move your rest around to get the arrow in, in perfect line with that string. But, but newer bows, you know, because of the more offset that we have in risers with the great strides they're making with, carbon risers and then of course milled aluminum risers these days you know many of these bows do already come with a pretty true center shot so there's a pretty big group of people out there that argue that paper tuning is an obsolete way of tuning a bow 
But from where I sit, I completely disagree with that. I can see. I mean, with what you're saying, you know, the newer designs, they're eliminating that potential feature. But knowing that there is a traditional way, uh, another element to ensure that you're getting things aligned, even though it might be obsolete, so to speak, for certain people, it has a role and it can be applied to even for the newer bows, wouldn't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I wouldn't even, I, I don't like the term obsolete with paper tuning because for its original intended purpose with a traditional bow or even solar compounds. It's what we're trying to achieve with any bow, be it a bow that's got a, a new off, more offsets true center shot riser compared to an older model that, that didn't necessarily have that. What we're trying to accomplish in, is getting the arrow, leaving the bow as straight and as perfectly as we can. And that's what paper tuning does. Okay. So, and that, that's what we're trying to accomplish. But on the other end of it, paper tuning isn't the end-all, be-all. In fact, paper tuning is more of a great place to start is kind of the way I look at it. And I think most of the guys that are into tuning their own equipment, like myself, would agree with that statement. Well, most of the time, whenever I would take my bow into the shop, and usually... I'm getting to the part where I love learning more about the inner workings of the bow. But every time I went to a pro shop and we were testing out my bow, we we're using the paper tuning method and I see they have a full rig on it. And, but I know that there are people that build them at home. I know there's a, there's probably a method. There's, I'm not sure exactly the cost. I've seen things like pictures online that use PVC pipes. And, um, is that, is there a, a simplified method of doing it? There, is there anything that people should think about if they want to maybe, possibly make a, uh, a paper tuner for home, things they should think about having or the cost factor? You know, you can make it for about as much as you want to spend. And if you don't want to spend anything on it, then you probably don't have to, to be perfectly honest with you. All you really need is a way to suspend a piece of butcher paper or I've used wax paper or parchment paper or any really kind of thin, brittle or paper will work pretty well. And as long as you can suspend that in a way that it has tension on it, then then you can create a paper tuning station. Oh, so you don't even because I think the photos I've only seen were pretty much everybody's been using uh, PVC piping, but you're having to buy that at the hardware store. There seems to be a lot of parts and uh, elements, but you're saying that you can actually make these fairly simple, even removing that element just by having just you needing the paper in a way to support it. You know what I honestly use I. This is going to sound crazy, but I've got this old wire frame from a garage sale sign that that I actually uh, just took the, uh, I think it was, or maybe it was a real estate sign or something, but it was one of those promotional things. And I found it laying in my yard one day and I started to throw it away and I said, hey, wait a minute. And, and quite literally, I used little clamps to just clamp paper into it. That right there kind of makes me think that when you go into a uh, shooting range for a gun, they have, mm -hmm. it's all similar. It has just a, almost a coat hanger style, and usually they have you know, your normal paper that you put on there, and then clips just to hold your target. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Pretty much. The big thing is, though, is you do want a sturdy base because even though that paper is brittle and it's going to tear pretty easily, especially with these modern bows shooting arrows in excess of 300 feet per second, you know, there is going to be a little movement, and you want that thing to be as static as possible because you might start getting some some funny readings or false tears. So, you know, the idea of you know going into the into the local home improvement store and picking up some P 
PVC fittings and just building yourself something, you could probably do that for less than 10 bucks. I, that's kind of the way I would go if I were going to go to build one right now, if I didn't already have this set up. You know, I've done just about everything from, from just hanging something from rafters in my basement with a little bit of weight on it to uh, using the, the sign frame that I was just talking about. And there's actually a really cool product that I bought here a while back. And, I, and forgive me, I don't remember who makes it, but it's called Paper Tune It is the name of it. It actually comes with a little cardboard frame and stand on it. It's got three yellow ovals in there for you to shoot through. And the first one you shoot through and it, it'll show you your tear. And then it even tells you what adjustments that you need to make to get that bullet hole. So that's a pretty cool product too, but it has its inherent problems as we'll probably get into a little bit later when we start talking about, I, in my opinion, the, the right way to paper tune. That's actually a good way to segment to you know, when you are doing paper tuning. And the the con that the idea is to get the bullet hole, but not that's not always the case. You end up getting different tears, and I can't remember all the different terms. But there's like tear left or tear right. There's four or five or six different placements that will help identify what might be going wrong. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. And and the thing is, is that I kind of want to maybe back up a little bit. You know, paper tuning isn't just necessarily a way of checking to make sure that your arrow is leaving the bow. And yes, it is, but at the same time, it can tell you something else about your bow. For instance, cam lean is a bit is easily identified, you know, through through paper tuning. That's something that that's easily identified. Uh, spine issues with arrows is one that I see come up quite a bit with the guys that I help paper tune. Uh, knock height is one of those things. Cam timing, especially on, on binary cam bows. In the, any kind, anytime you have a t- two cam or a binary cam system, you know, you have that cam timing. And if you have one of your cams hitting in a just out of time, it can actually create some, some funny looking tears too. Wow. So in fact, I actually just recently dealt with something pretty similar to that. And I actually identified a bench riser on a bow because of paper tuning. Really? Certainly, that was what was suspected. And here a while back, I actually came across one that had, had some messed up limb pockets because it wouldn't paper tin. And we tried just about everything we could do. I even went into my local shop, which, you know, to give them a plug, Mike's Archery and St. Peter's. Those guys, they're about as good as it gets. And, and we were scratching our heads for a while till we figured out what the culprit was. That is strange. So yeah, it, it literally helps yeah. you narrow down even things that are not necessarily the, the shot itself. It's getting into elements of the bow, different parts. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, torque, cam lean, those are just the big ones. Spine issues with the arrow. I've had uh, I've had arrow rest that wouldn't tune well. Then, you know, we had I've had a bow that, that wouldn't tune worth a darn with, with the rest I had on it, and I tried several different rests and just could not get it to tune. Then, of course, put put a whisker biscuit on it and you know and just the nature of that fixed rest like that bam we're getting bullet holes all day and she's a great shooting bow and she's my backup now so i've actually even thought about going back to a whisker biscuit because even though i have a drop away and Mm -hmm. it seems to be doing nice but man i I always feel like i mean because i can't test it myself but i always wondered every time i do a release if that drop away is going down fast enough i feel like i'm hitting the bottom of the base of the the drop away as it's released or leaving and well that's actually a really easy thing to test something you can do by yourself pretty simple with baby powder oh 
I honestly didn't mean to. Sorry to. No, no, I, I, I never even thought about that. That's a good idea. Yeah, and that's that's a great way to test for uh, vein clearance is using a little bit of baby powder. You know, a lot of these things are kind of homegrown tricks, but they're also things that that you know you go into some of your best shots around and that or you call them and they say, "Well, have you tried this? Have you have you checked for vein clearances?" Or maybe your veins are catching catching your control cable because of the way your center shot on the bow is. So, you know, that's a whole other issue. You get into knock tuning of arrows, but that's for a whole other <laughs> idea. But yeah, most likely. The paper tuning, you know, a lot of guys say it's, it's unnecessary, but I, I don't mean to be condescending when I say this, but I, I feel as if the person that says that maybe doesn't necessarily have the full scope of understanding of, how their equipment works because I find it highly enlightening and it's and maybe it's a placebo for me but I'll tell you I have so much fun goofing around with it <laughs> I on the reason why I got into the wanting to build a paper tuner and kind of know more about how it works and ideas of when you see different placement where to start looking for an answer is because when I shot two years ago, I got a buck and it was an eight pointer is the best one I've ever was able to take down, but it was around 25, 20, 25 yards. I had what I thought was a clear, perfect shot. And it was, it entered perfectly, it exited, but there's a whole many factors that happened during that variables. When I released my arrow, the flight pattern was total crap. It was flopping back and forth. I could clearly see the tail end just flopping. And though it still penetrated where I wanted, the issue happened is when it penetrated, about two inches after the broadhead entered the, the cavity, it broke off and it got pushed down into the gut pile and the arrow still passed through. And when I was able to, after two miles of tracking, I was able to find the deer. Come to find out my shot placement was correct. It was right where I was aiming, which was a good shot. But because the arrow was in such a, I think, a hard bend during penetration, it had, I guess, the kinetic energy or something. It snapped the arrow and pushed the broadhead down and allowed that deer run so far. And that bothered me because I didn't want that to happen. I never wanted it to happen again. Otherwise, you can never have a perfect shot. And so knowing that, I started doing research, and we were testing out all different things about my bow. thought maybe my shot placements were incorrect, my pin placement or the, uh, the, the sight itself was incorrect. It ended up being it was my, my release. It was I was using a single hook release, and everything I tried, I, no matter how many adjustments I made to the bow, I was still getting like a a left. Uh, my I guess the tail end was breaking the paper tuning about an inch half left every single time, no matter what I did, until I changed the release to a double clamp. I'm not sure exactly the term for it, but once I did that, it was shooting bullet holes right after that. So you went to a, a two-jaw style release? And Correct. Took care of it? Yeah, that right. was it. But every single thing, I mean, no matter what we were doing, it was literally uh, keeping a, I guess it's called a left tear, yes. but the left tear. And yeah, knock left. There you is, go. Is what I think you're describing there. And, but everything we tried, it was just narrowing down all the elements. And so come to find out the paper tuning, it did help us narrow down what wasn't going wrong with our my bow and it just happened to be something off the bow and it was my release it could also be my posture on top of it when i was pulling back but it was it definitely helped us narrow down what 
was happening. And at that point, I realized I'm more interested in knowing how things are happening. And which is the the idea of building one seems intriguing to me because I can do it instead of having to go to a shop. I could do it at home at any time. Yeah. And, and you know, that that's a great story and a great example of exactly what I'm talking about. As far as the paper tinning, telling you, giving you a lot more information than necessarily just how your arrow is leaving the, the bow. Yes, we're using that information for how the arrow is leaving the bow, but it can tell us an awful lot if we know what we're looking for. And, you know, I I don't claim to be an expert in this by any stretch because there's a heck of a lot of really smart guys out there that, that do this every day for a living. And, but this has been my experience while working with some of those pretty smart guys too, you know, and picking their brains and spending a lot of time with them. So, you know, you, you say you had that, um, if I could re- go back a little bit, and as far as what you're talking about with your, uh, your deer you took, that's a great example, I think, of why a lot of deer are possibly not recovered. Because a lot of guys will go to their, their big box store that we all know and love, whatever the one that you happen to have near you that, that you go to. And, and they're great places and, and you can get a lot of great things and accessories in there. But more often than not, a guy decides he wants to go bow hunting and he goes into that, that box store. He picks out something, he shoots a couple arrows in their little 10 yard inside range and he feels pretty good about it and he likes it and flops down the card and he spends, you know, six, seven hundred bucks getting himself a bow and another couple hundred bucks on a case and release and maybe a half dozen arrows and off to the range he goes. He goes down the range, and instead of tuning that bow, and it's not because of anything other than uh, they don't know. It's it's just ignorance. They don't necessarily know unless they've got somebody who's pretty hardcore into it that they need to tune that bow before they do. So what happens is they go out to the range. They go out, and I see this almost weekly when I, I go to my local range. Here's a guy with a shiny new toy, especially getting close to deer season. He's down there moving his pins and his sights all around, and trying to get, get his point of impact right, and he's sighting in his bow. You know, and they always use that, that, that term, sighting in your bow. And I just, when I hear somebody say that, I just, I instantly tense up a little bit because <laughs> that's not necessarily what I want to hear a guy say, and especially somebody who just picked up a new bow. So he's got his field points on there. He gets the 100 grains, and he gets the, the arrows that the, the guy behind the counter suggested because or he buys the ones his buddy shoots because his buddy says, hey, these are what I use and I love them. And, hey, that guy's got a couple nice deer on the wall. And and that's how a lot of these guys make their decisions. And, and, and I don't mean that to be a negative thing, but, you know, things like this podcast and, and that Facebook forum that you met me on is, is great because it, it, it takes these guys to another level of education and it helps them understand what they're doing. And I think as, as ethical hunters, we owe that to our, that our quarry that we know as much about our equipment, how it works, why it works the way it does, and why it's behaving the way it is in certain situations so that we can make the most ethical shot on that animal so we can get a good, clean, quick kill. I agree. Uh, and I, to be honest, when I first got into bow hunting, I was that person. I still feel like I'm that person in some areas uh, throughout the years of uh, I'm learning as much as I can because I feel like right now I'm a sponge and it's because I'm at that point when I want to know as much as possible to make sure I'm that better hunter. But when I first got in, it was literally, 
what I saw on TV or the magazines um, to I trusted whoever I was speaking with at the shop. And it could just been they wanted to sell off a certain item, so they were telling me what to buy. And then were a friend of mine that what they're shooting and I decided well I don't know any better they shoot they obviously know more than I do so I just bought what they bought and so I learned over time (laughs) that wasn't always the best case and I'm still at that point I mean I'm now getting into arrows and uh, arrows are a totally new element uh, that I'm just now dabbling in because I for even last year or two years ago I bought two dozen of arrows when I was going out to Utah for a 3D shoot. At the time, it was called Bowcast at the Bird. But um, I I just bought whatever was there, and I was trying to get the bigger bang for the buck, as much more arrows I could get for the cheapest price, not really thinking about the quality, the flight trajectory, the, the spines, or anything. I was just going based on budget. And come to find out, that wasn't the smartest idea because I think I had 12, a full 12 arrows sitting for almost an entire year. And when I came down to try using them, they weren't shooting very good. So I learned my lesson that sometimes quality from the beginning is the best decision. You know, I, I think that's a lesson that applies to just about everything in our lives. You know, you buy the better thing once instead of buying the cheaper one three or four times. <laughs> if we could only get our wives to realize that too. <laughs> you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm pretty blessed in that my wife definitely embodies that philosophy. She takes that to heart you know we 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 don't really buy anything unless we have shopped it pretty doggone thoroughly before we can do nice. so now but, but and that goes right back to our, our we'll just call you know, call him you know the box store bow hunter he goes out and he buys that bow he he, he buys some broadheads because he saw these these guys on tv using them and oh my gosh it has this huge wound channel and a great blood trail or, or wow, this thing will shoot through a, through a uh, 55 gallon barrel or whatever YouTube video that you've seen on some of these things. And anyway, they, they go out, they get their bow sighted in and, and they do a good job with it. And they're, they're hitting their marks at 20, 30 yards. They're doing okay. Then they go home, they, they screw their broadheads on, put their quiver on and go out to hunt and, you know, if they get the opportunity to take an animal, they they might put a good shot on that deer, or they might put a bad shot on that deer, or they might even miss. And they're going to be second-guessing themselves. Well, man, I felt like I made a good shot. Now, oh, there's something wrong with my bow. There's something wrong with something. Oh, I don't like these broadheads. These broadheads don't fly very good. I hear that one a lot. That, you know, oh, these these broadheads don't hit next to my field points. Well, that, and that's that whole another level of tuning that we're talking about, and that all starts with paper tape. I believe. Well, kind of going back into the, the understanding of paper tuning and uh, the idea that there are different elements of knowing the way the paper is breaking, how do you gauge, like, what are the different commonalities for if it's, you said it was tune left, tune right, is that correct? Uh, knock left or knock, knock right, right, right. You get, basically, what? you have four basic tears that you're going to commonly see, and you have a, and then you have variations of these four. But basically what you're going to see is a knock high tear. And what, what that's going to look like, imagine a Y with a big hole in the bottom of it. Okay. You know, the letter Y. That would be knock high. And what that's telling you is, is that the tip of your arrow, the field point, is, is entering the paper lower than what the, the, uh, the knock or the fleshings are going through it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I know this is, this is a podcast, so it's, it's visualizing can sometimes be difficult. <laughs> 
Well, I got that when you said the Y, it does make sense because you're, you're, the arrows, the, the broadhead's lower, and then the tail end is more higher, kind of popping right. up. Right, right. The, the point is lower than the tail. That's not high. And, and that kind of tear usually tells us that our knocking point or our D-loop isn't in the right place. Okay. You know, and it, it, I mean, there's also things that you could do. And here's, let me rewind here a little bit. Okay. Before I paper tune anything, I've got that bow in the vise. It's perfectly level. And I've got the level in there. I've got, I'll, I'll knock an arrow and, and I'll pull my drop away all the way up so that, you know, I've got that arrow and I can measure its level. In the older bows, they, they tended to wanted to knock the arrow just a little bit higher so that it, it did actually kind of have the, the, the nose down a little bit. That used to be, in fact, that's my understanding. I, I personally don't have any experience in that. That's just, uh, with older bows, I haven't, haven't actually set up an older bow. I've just helped tune a couple. Um, but they always want, want those set up a little bit knock high is what they tell you. So I digress there a little bit, but I want to make sure that my arrow is in that on my string. It's knocked in my string in the center of my D loop with the rest fully up so that my arrow is sitting perfectly level. And if I'm there, then I know I can pretty much eliminate that it's a knock-high situation. Does okay. that make sense? Because yeah. I don't want to move my rest. When it comes to comes to uh, actually paper tuning initially, I don't want to move my rest. If you look on the Internet and stuff, they'll, they'll show you these tear charts and, and the adjustments that you make with your rest to uh, get that paper tune. And, and that's fine, especially for a back-to-box store hunter. You know, let's say you got the box store hunter. He's going to go out. He's like, okay, I'm going to screw some mechanicals onto here. And he paper tunes it a little bit and moves his rest to accomplish that. Then you know what? He's probably good to go. As long as he's not shooting a, a fixed or a cut on contact head, he's probably going to be hitting pretty close to his field points. And I have a couple of buddies that that's exactly what they do. And every year they, they take great deer and they think I'm just, you know, cuckoo for, getting so hot and heavy into this too you're like dude why are you always playing with your bow because it's there you know yeah but uh it's the best reason i can give but um you know they do that and they'll shoot the mechanicals and they do a great job with them i personally i like to shoot a cut on contact head and that goes back to what i was saying where the guy try he screws on the the let's just say a muzzy you know it's a great product it's been around forever it's taken every kind of animal in the world you know but he screws screws a, a big three blade muzzy on the on the head of his or into the insert of his arrow and away he goes and, and it, it's not he perhaps even tries to shoot at a, a block target before he goes let's hope so and he and he can't figure out why his arrow's not hitting and that all comes down to we didn't necessarily get that bow tuned the right way so where I'm starting, I guess I'm all over the map here right now, and I'm sorry about that, Travis. No, you're um, you're kind of giving a really a wide perspective of where this is leading to. Well, and that's what I want to do. Okay, so if, let's suppose I go buy a new bow. I go to my local archery shop or shops and shoot every bow that they have four or five times on multiple days until I make my decision, because that's how I'm going to do it. I'm definitely not going to just go in there and go, yeah, that looks good. Ooh, that's fast. Yeah, I'm going to buy it. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to shop it. So I shop it. I picked out the bow I want. I'm going to go with, I'm going to pick out the rest that I like. And I know I've got a rest that I absolutely swear by. And, and it's, I'll put it on every bow I own as long as they keep making them or, 
or until they improve on this. Um, I'm going to buy that rest, and I'm going to go in and I'm going to look at my my owner's manual, and I'm going to check the uh, factory center shot recommendation. So, so what what I'm talking about there is is where the center of that rest comes in, or where that rest comes in into the riser. I'm going to measure that gapping, and most bows are 13 sixteenths or seven eighths. I'm thinking I might have those numbers off, but I know mine is seven eighths. My 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 new bow is seven eighths. So I'm going to set that rest at, at the seven eighths of an inch, and I'm going to get that set up. I've got my rest set up. I'm going to make sure that my arrow is is level at full draw, and I'm going to leave my rest alone at that point. I'm going to then I'm going to start paper tuning, but I'm not going to paper tune by moving my rest like a lot of these charts will suggest you do. I'm going to paper tune by using my yokes. That's the way I'm going to do that. When you mean by yoke, what are you saying exactly? Well, if you look at the bow from the back, if, if you're holding your bow by the grip and you're looking at the string from behind it, you'll see, you know, you've got your string where your arrow knocks, but you've got the control cable that comes up uh, in between the string and the riser, depending on either through your roller guard or through your your slide, whichever you have, comes up through there, and then it that, that cable splits into a Y. Okay. Okay. And in a lot of, uh, you know, this is really true, especially for uh, single can bows. Which It'll happens to be what I shoot. Right, right. So so what, what you're going to do is, is you're, take your shot. You know, you're going to set up to that paper tuning station. You'll be about three feet away with it, away from it, and with the paper in front of the target enough so that you can remove your arrow from the target without banging into your, your tuning station. But about three feet, three to four feet is about as far away as you want to be because you want to basically just be far enough away so that the, your arrow has completely cleared your bow by the time it's entering the paper, but nothing more. Because what we don't want to do is that, that, that arrow, if it's spined properly, is going to straighten itself out in flight. Now, if it's improperly spined, it, it may not quite do that. It might keep flexing and bulging and snaking its way all the way down there. But we want to... We don't want to give it time to straighten itself out. We want it to give it just enough time to recover from that paradox, if there is any, so that it hits that paper at the angle that it's leaving the bow. Does that make sense? It does. Right. So that's what we're looking for. And, that, and then we're going to look at that tear. That tear is going to tell us what's happening with our arrow. It's going to give us a picture. I mean, obviously, most of us probably, or any of us have, have super slow motion cameras so that we can actually take high speed film to see what our arrow is doing. This paper gives us a, a snapshot, if you will, of what's happening to that arrow as it's passing through that paper and as it's traveling down range. So I'm going to get in there and I'm going to get, start playing with my yokes. You know, let's suppose I've got, let's just fast forward a little bit and say that, you know, I've got a knock left tear. Now, when I look at a knock left here, that's going to tell me one of three things. Right? That's going to tell me I've either got a little bit of cam lean. That's going to tell me that I have, I've got either a little cam lean. Maybe I'm torquing the bow at release. Uh, maybe I've got a timing issue with my cams. And there's, an, I guess, four things. There's an outside chance that I've got a weak spine. You know, so that's, that's what I'm going to do. So let's take weak spine out of the equation. We're going to we're going to assume that, that I was smart and I knew my draw length and weight and I consulted my spine chart before I bought my arrows and, and I, I considered my dynamic spine of the arrow so that um, 
I compensated for the extra point weight that I have. And I've got the right spined arrows. So that means now I've got either a timing issue or I've got a little bit of cam lean. Fast forward, I've got a little cam lean. What I'm going to do then is I'm going to look at that tear and it's going to tell me what I need to do. It's like, okay, you know, I'm going to put the bow in the press. I'm going to take the cables off. I'm going to put a twist in, put a twist in one side and take a twist out of the other in whatever direction I need, be it knock left or knock right. And I'm going to do that until I correct that tear. And I'm, I'm going to correct that tear by, by, by turning my yokes versus moving my rest around. When you're saying the turning the yoke part and turning one side left and one side right, are you talking about the top and bottom of the cable? Like if you're turning the top of your cable right one turn, no, you're turning no, the bottom left? No, I'm looking at like on a single cam bow. I'm looking at the, the, the yokes coming into the idler, idler wheel off the axle. Okay, okay. Sorry, I, I misunderstood that, but now I got it. Yeah, that, I, and I, I didn't make that clear. Uh, so I'm looking at just that, that Y coming into my uh, idler wheel. In a good way, let's rewind a little bit and talk about cam lean because that's something that a lot of people don't even think about. You know, if, if you draw your bow, full draw, and you get back, go ahead and, and try to look up your string and look at how your string is coming off of your, your idler wheel. If it's not coming off right down the pipe, then you've got some cam lean. And, that, and you, you deal with that cam lean by putting those twists in or, and taking out. Because whatever you do on one side of that yoke, you need to do the opposite to the other side so that you can compensate for that to get that bowstring running straight down that bow, right down the, the channel or the groove in your idler wheel, right down, you know, as plumb as it can be into the corresponding channel on your camp. So that's what we're doing is, is when we get in there and we're tuning with our yokes, we're trying to take out any slightest cam lean that you have, make sure that your string is running right down the pipe. And that's what I'm going to do with my paper chair. Okay. I hope I didn't, too far off there no no um but you're talking about that that's how one adjustment of going from the uh, knock left and but is that the same element if you're knock right and you just basically yeah, it's, it's reverse the effect exactly right okay you know the big thing that 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 i see usually is that spine issues i have a guy's like hey hey tommy i've been trying to gets a load of paper tune and I can't do it, I can't do it. You know, and my first question is what kind of tear are you get? Man, I keep getting this bad knock left tear. So right then that that sets off alarm bells in my head because I'm thinking, oh man, dude, you might be shooting an underspined arrow. You know, so that's not necessarily be a bow issue. That could very easily be an arrow issue because a lot of times a guy will go out and buy his new bow and he gets his draw link set, puts his old, old you know, accessories on. So you know, he's going to shoot his same arrows. And, you know, this new bow might, you know, be 10 years newer technology than, than what he had before. And there's a lot more energy going on there. His arrows may not be spined enough. Anytime you're shooting an underspined arrow, you're, you're running the risk of uh, some pretty bad things too. Not to mention just not making consistent shots. Because it's got too much kinetic energy pushing it out? Yeah, and, and what we're talking about there, you know, is that's getting into that arrow spine. I won't spend too much time on it. I'm sure you guys would probably already beat that to death. But it's, um, you know, what you're talking about is, is the manufacturing process on these arrows. You know, these carbon arrows, they have that one central spine that all their wraps are around so that they have to have a starting point, basically. And, and, and that's going to be the stiffest part of that arrow. And if your spine isn't stiff enough, your arrow is, is going to, you know, possibly fishtail or fly funny through the air. And usually what I see with that, I mean, it may not be the only thing that happens, of course, but... 
the thing that I see most common is if you got a guy that's getting a consistent tail left tear, I, I am going to check arrow spot. You know, I want to look at your draw weight. I want to know what your draw length is. I want to know the what's the what grain is your insert? Are you using a heavy brass insert? Are you using some sort of hit system? Or you know, what grain of, of head are you shooting? Like me, I shoot a 42 grain brass insert with 125 grain head. You know, I'm a big believer in FOC. So I like to stack as much weight out on the front of that head as I can. So because of that, think of inertia for a, for a second here, not to go too technical, but, you know, inertia is an object's resistance to a change in motion, right? So the more weight you have stacked out on the front of that arrow, the more resistant that arrow is going to be to moving when that string is released, and therefore it's going to make it flex a little bit more. So if you're going to shoot, you know, 150 grain or maybe even if you're, let's say you're right on the edge of, uh, right on the edge of your spine limit, then I want to say air on the side of the stiffer arrow, especially if you're a guy that's going to shoot 125 grain heads versus 100, or maybe you want to put those inserts in there. You know, I'm stacking, let's see, 125 plus 42, what is that, 166? or 157, 157 grains up front on my uh, arrow. So compared to the normal 12 or I think 12 grain inserts, they usually are, you know, that's 112 grains. So you're getting big boost in, in mass up front. Hmm. For people that you are know, buying a new bow, or even their old bow, depending on what they're using, they need to make sure that they're getting or knowing what their bow uh, specs are so they can find the right arrow that matches for that. Oh, gosh, yeah. And the thing is, is not every arrow, that's the other thing that guys will make the mistake. They're like, oh, well, I've always shot, let's say, 400 spines through from this, or 350, uh, 350 spines through this company, or 340 spines through this company. So they go, maybe they switch brands, and then they buy the, the competitor's 340 or 350 spine arrow. But that competitor's got a different manufacturing process. So their 340 spine, although it means the same thing and it's measured the same way, may not spec out or tune right, tune well on your bow. Now, sure, you can make adjustments and, and make your bow tune to just about any arrow you want, really, but, you know, that, that gets into a whole other podcast, and we don't want to necessarily do that. <laughs> but the, the best thing you want to do is, is just get the right spine before you start trying to tune. That's a whole other thing, because if you switch arrows that maybe have different specs, then, then you're going to want to go back and, re- and recheck this. I you know, that, so, that, yeah. so that's something that you're going to want to check. And again, that's one of those things that paper tuning can give you a, a quick, quick look at. I guess the ultimate thing, try to go back to what you were asking about, is, is we want to get that bullet hole, you know? That's what we're looking for, is to get that bullet hole with our yokes. I get that bullet hole with my yokes. The next step I'm going to do for me, I, I listen to your, your podcast on tuning and there are about a thousand different ways to skin a cat and none of them are, are <laughs> more right than another. It's just what's most right for you. I think, um, my personal preferred method of tuning after I've, I've got my bullet hole is I'm going to do a modified French tune, which that gets me going right away. I'm, I find that I can, I can do that within 10 yards. I can do that inside in the, 
dead cold of winter. I don't even have to go outside. And I can do that in about, oh, I don't know, depending on how out of tune the bow is. After I've got the paper tuning done, I can modify French tuna bow in 15 minutes, you know, usually. Simple. It's easy. It's something that the layperson can do, which is kind of why I, I shy away from suggesting some of the other tuning, uh, broadhead tuning methods to, uh, you know, the less experienced archer. Well, kind of just a, a quick recap on a modified French tuning. What is the process on that? It's, it's pretty simple, really. All you're going to do is after you've got your bow paper tuned, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to, I'm going to set my 20 yard pin. I'm just going to focus on height. You know, I'm going to focus on, on my level. It's like, okay, I've got, got it. You know, it's close. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk up to three yards and I'm going to shoot at a string. What I'm going to do is I'm going to suspend a string or maybe you want to take a level and make a perfectly level, you know, line right down the center of your target. You know, something that bears mentioning here that I haven't mentioned. This all needs to be done at shoulder level. We're paper tuning or any kind of French or modified French tuning. I find it's best done at shoulder level. I mean, well, paper tuning has to be done at shoulder level. But what I'll do is I'll step up to like three yards. You know, I'll go to three yards and I will uh, take a couple shots. And you're using your 20-yard pin? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah, or or actually probably usually I use my 30-yard pin. But I don't really care. I mean... Because I've got, you know, three yards, I'm just making sure I'm on target. And I'm going to aim at that string, you know, that string or that tape or whatever I did. But I want it to be pretty small. I don't want to use, like, one-inch masking tape. I want to use something that's pretty small. Like yarn. Uh, what am I, yarn or uh, I like paracord. Paracord, you know, actually, yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, use the, the manually turn paired cord, no yarn. Yarn, strict that from the, the conversation. No more yarn. Yarn? Whoa, whoa. whoa. We're going to be knitting in this episode. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, it, it, as simple as it is, you know what I'll do is I just staple a piece of paired cord. I, I actually built a DIY target for like 30, or I, don't know, I think it was like 50 bucks total, but it, it's great. And I just staple a piece of paracord or 550 cord, whatever you call it, right in the center of the target. And I, I took one of my wife's little five-pound walking weights and tied it to the bottom so that that thing just hangs plumb. And then I, I shoot at that string at three yards. And I will move my pin around until my uh, until my arrow is hitting that string. You'd be surprised. You, you know, hitting a small thing like that string is pretty simple. You know, if your form is good and you uh you know you're doing everything right you you, you move your pin you, you set your your windage at up close by moving your pin around so you hit the string then i'm going to step back to nine yards and then i'm going to shoot again and i'm going to shoot shoot at that same string i'm going to try to aim at that same basic spot and i'm going to shoot a couple arrows and, and i i don't want to shoot at the same spot necessarily with the different arrows but what i'm looking for is is am i hitting the string and if i'm not hitting the string how am I missing? First of all, what I, I got to have, and anybody that's going to do this at home, you need to be proficient enough and confident enough in your shooting to know that, you know, what you're, you're doing the same thing over and over again. You know, if you've got one that's an inch to the right and one that's two inches to the left, well, you need to go back and do it again. You need to go keep shooting at nine yards until you've got a clear and developed pattern of where your misses are. That's a good tip there because the idea is the consistency to make sure you're doing things correctly. Right. And if you're not 
consistent with your misses, then it's not giving you the information that you need. Now, let's pretend that, let's uh, not pretend, I'll just take you through my last, last modified French tuning. I was missing about an inch to the left of the line. I'm like, all right. So just for giggles, I step back to 20 yards. I have a 20-yard range in my basement. I step back to 20 yards, and I shot three arrows. And I found that at 20 yards, that inch left miss of the string was about two, two and a half inches or so. So, so I'm like, okay, I'm clearly off, off my string. So I, I walk back up to nine yards real quick. I make a rest adjustment. I make a really, really slight rest adjustment. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move that rest in the direction that I want the arrow to go. You know, normally when we're, we're adjusting our pins, we're chasing our arrow. But with our rest, I'm not doing that. I'm, uh, well, I guess I am to some degree. But I'm moving that, that rest in the direction that I want the arrow to move. So I'm going to make like a, a 64th or a 32nd of an inch adjustment in the direction that I need my arrow to go. Then I'm going to go through that process again. So I'm going to step back up to three yards. I'm going to shoot the string, make sure I'm still hitting the string. Yes, I'm still hitting the string. Now I'm going to go back to nine yards and shoot at the string again. Oh, you know what? I'm still a little bit left, but I'm only about a half inch off the string now. Okay, so I'm going to make another 64th of an inch adjustment, just the smallest, tiniest adjustment to my wrap. And then I'm going to go back up to my three yards again, again, to make sure that I'm still that my pin is still right. And then I'll go back to nine yards and double check to see if that adjustment that I made to the rest, you know, got me on the string. And usually after doing that twice, I'm hitting that string at nine yards. So double check, and this is just me. I just add an extra layer in there. I will then step back to 20 yards, or if I go across my base, then I can get 23 yards, and I'll start shooting at that same string to see if I'm getting any identifiable patterns as far as, uh, you know, misses go. And usually when it gets to that point, let's say I'll shoot three or four arrows, I'll hit the string once, and then another two times I'll have one just to the right of the string and one just to the left of the string. It's like, okay, that's me. You know, I'm I'm hitting pretty good at that point. I'm going to feel like my bow's got a pretty good tune on it. And to double-check that, then, of course, I screw on a broadhead. You screw on the broadhead that I'm going to use, and I'll start, you know, I, I my favorite uh you know, target enhancer is bright pink and fluorescent pink uh, duct tape. You know, I keep a roll of that in my bow case at all times because you've got an automatic little target and a nice roll. It's inexpensive, you know. So I, I stick a little, little like one-inch piece of that on my block, and, you know, I'll step back to 23 yards or whatever, and I'll, I'll take a shot with my broadhead first. You know, I, I shoot it, and if I hit that spot, I'm probably good, but then to double-check, I will shoot a broadhead right at it, or not, I'm sorry, not a broadhead, but a field point. If my field point hits right next to where that broadhead hit, I'm good to go. But yeah, that's a simple way to do it. And I think, you know, if you paper tune your bow, if you have access to a press, you know, that's great. Most guys don't. I mean, who's got $1,000 laying around to buy a bow press, right? (laughs) Right. You know, if you're not comfortable doing, doing that, then by all means, don't. But go to your shop, say, hey, I want to yoke tune my bow. I want to check any camling you know if you got a good shop they won't have any problem doing that they might charge you 10 or 20 bucks for their time but you know most of the time they just like those techs like playing with that stuff anyway you shoot but have them adjust the yokes then go home and and do that modified french tinning and and chances are a lot more deer would be recovered and 
you know, there would be a lot less stories of the one that we didn't find versus, hey, look at this great guy I've got hanging on my wall. One of the things I, I wanted to reiterate is what you said was that not only you're shooting these, but you're shooting them at shoulder level, not just the paper tuning, but you're also doing the modified French tuning at uh, shoulder level as well? I prefer to do that because I think it takes variables out of the equation that might be there otherwise because it, it eliminates form flaw issues that might come up. Right, the inconsistencies of your own shot placements or right. your form. Right, so that's why I like to... I like to do all that tuning stuff at shoulder level. That's just me per- personally. I have to say, I mean, I've had a few people on the shows that they've mentioned about doing a modified French tuning, but no one's really gotten that deep into understanding of how to do it. And the idea to you know, to eliminate one of those variables is to do it at shoulder length does sound more uh, of a, a more efficient way to achieve this. At least you know you're narrowing everything down and removing those variables that could affect it. And see, this, the problem, I think, and, and I'm just spitballing here, but, you know, as guys, you know, we're ego-driven, testosterone-filled, you know, and we're a bunch of guys talking about bow hunting, so we're <laughs> all pretty macho type of guys. You know, we're not necessarily, and we're, we're bow hunters, which means we tend to, like the, the solitude of doing things. We're not necessarily the type of person that necessarily wants, a lot of us anyway, aren't necessarily the type that, that wants somebody to come in and tell us what we're doing isn't right unless we solicited that advice, you know? And that's why I'm always hesitate. And then there's always the guy who, oh, well, this works for me, so, so this is absolutely right. And the things that you're saying isn't... And, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had a guy ask me a question and then argue with me about the answer. And, and it's like, you know, I don't claim to have all the answers. Shoot, there's guys that, that I've become pretty good friends with through the forum who, you know, have forgotten more about bow tuning and maintenance and all the like than I, I'd probably ever known or will know, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm just a DIY guy that's got a little bit of equipment in his basement and a slightly better than rudimentary understanding of how the equipment works, you know? And, and you I'm, know, I'm I, that guy that's the eager element. I want to learn. And uh, in fact, I think that's why the listeners also are coming on and liking the shows because we're asking the questions and getting, the, it doesn't matter if you're the expert or you're someone uh, intermediate or someone in the beginning, every person has something to learn or something to share. It doesn't really matter your skill level. There's something you might know something better over someone else, um, and which I think is great because it's all about, like how you said, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, there's not one right way. There's just a way per that person. Yeah, man, and that's right. Because like, I watched a YouTube video the other day where this, this guy was talking about how paper tuning is completely useless and yada, yada, yada. And he made some valid points, and the things he was saying wasn't entirely wrong. But at the same time, I felt like he was overlooking those other elements we spoke to as far as how it can, it can show you torque. It can show you how you're torquing your bow. It can show you how you are, uh, perhaps you have other issues like camling going on or, or spine issues or, or knock height. All of those things are, you know, things that we can learn from it. And then, you know, if we wanted to take this paper tuning a whole step further, we can get into bear shaft tuning. 
And bear shaft tuning is, you can bear shaft tune through paper and knock tune through paper as well. And that's some really cool stuff. But that's that's like a whole nother level. Like that the guy that's just trying to figure out how to paper tune his bow probably isn't ready to mess around with just yet. <laughs> that's paper tuning 2.0. <laughs> I don't know, that might be 5.0. 5.0, okay. <laughs> because, like, I, I love bear shaft tuning. Personally, I keep, whenever I buy a, a new dozen arrows, you know, I always keep what I call an archer's dozen because I like to keep a naked, unfletched arrow. You know, I, I, you know, glue it in an insert and put on a field point and everything, and I don't put any fletchings on it because I like to bear, I like to shoot that naked arrow. Uh, a great way to tell you how well-tuned your bow is is to bear shaft tune it. Oh man! Yeah, it's funny. It, 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 I've I've done that, but not based on having no fletching already on it. I did it after just popping off the fletching through multiple shots and passing through a target. And every time we kept pulling them out, eventually they tear off. Or when you shoot, one of them might fling off over time. And so you end up having either one fletching left, and you end up you just tearing that one last off. So I did it based on just wear and tear not really going in it as the initial starting point it's probably not the most efficient way it just happened to be because i just wanted to have fun shooting around and we we're goofing off oh yeah and see I, I i'm looking at it from another completely another end is that when i buy a new dozen arrows or if i'm testing some stuff out i want to you know and i'm going to be tuning i i want to have that naked arrow so that i can start playing around with some bear shaft tuning too to double check what i'm what's going on but but more importantly, and this is, again, me just spitballing here, but I think shooting a, a, a naked arrow is a really, really great way for an archer to improve their skills. Because once you know your bow is tuned and you know you've got a good tune on the bow, you've gone through everything, you've got your field points are hitting next to your broadheads, you've got, and I always say it that way. I know that sounds backwards, but I always say, you know, some guys, oh, you know, the, Broadheads hit side by side with field points. I prefer to say it the other way because I think it's crazy to shoot a broadhead at an arrow. So I always <laughs> shoot the broadhead first, then shoot the field point. Makes sense. It, it, it does to me. I don't know why more people don't say that, but I guess I'm cheap. But uh, no, I, I like shooting that naked arrow because it will expose form flaws faster than just about anything. You know, if you know that your bow is tuned well and you know that you're hitting, you're able to hit your spots from time to time with that, that bare arrow, boy, you make a shot and that thing goes in there sideways. You don't have the benefit of the fletchings to straighten it out. So it's completely reliant upon your bow's function and your body's ability to execute a perfect shot. So you're thinking uh, basically a bear shaft tuning is uh, an arrow that tells no lies. Exactly, exactly. Because you can't, you know, you don't have the benefit of, of the fletchings to, to uh, straighten you out. That's really interesting. You know, and that, that, that's, that's what I like to do. I actually wanted to throw, throw a, a word out there. You keep using the word cut on contact broadhead. And is that, yeah. you're still, that's the same thing as a fixed blade. Is that correct? Yeah. Because there's the mechanical and then there's fixed blade, but you're using the word cut on contact. It's just another term for fixed blade? Uh, yes and no in my understanding of it. And, and you know what? I might totally be wrong in the, the electronic world to go crazy on me for saying this, but when I think of a cut on contact head, I'm thinking of something that is got that has blade out in front of the ferrule, like or some sort of cutting surface ahead of the ferrule. For instance, uh, like I've 
right now I've got uh, I've got a couple different options that I've been playing around with. Uh, one of them, of course, is you know the Helix by Strickland. That's a pretty cool single bevel, heavy duty broadhead. It looks like something some sort of Paleolithic man was <laughs> using to take down a mammoth. But it's it's great flying head. I don't have any experience with it on an animal. But the other one that I, I you know that I have pretty high I'm kind of high on right now as far as the way it flies is is that uh Magnus that that like that stinger buzz cut that's a neat flying head and it's yeah. all blade out front you know that's excuse me that's what I'm thinking of when I'm talking about a, a cut on contact head one I, I'm also playing with that I'm really really excited about right now is the Wacom man you want to talk about a great flying head the price point you can't beat it it's got a stainless steel ferrule Super sharp, replaceable blades. Uh, they're awesome. They don't have a real huge cutting diameter. I think they're an inch and an eighth, maybe. But and boy, do these things fly great. The ones that I'm thinking about trying this year, and I've, I like the pattern I'm shooting with, is the the blood therapy. The OCD. Yeah. Yeah, is that the that's got the circular blade? Is that yeah, what I'm thinking that's of? exactly the one. It, the only reason why it just looks unique. The the concept behind it is that when you shoot, if it happens to hit bone, you know, instead of trying to penetrate through, it will pop open and it will allow it to roll around to help mm-hmm. eliminate some of that issues. I'm thinking that maybe it's a good concept, uh, but visually, every time I've shot, I've done it's been fairly clean on the different shot placements, and so I'm testing them out this year. I think it might be pretty good. They look cool in. in- like you said that it's got that that blade screwed in there you know it's kind of like that rage chisel tip you know it's got that extra little blade is that really a cut on contact i wouldn't consider a mechanical even though it has that fixed blade a cut on contact in my head i might be wrong but in my head that's not a cut on contact to me it's you know like like you said it's one of that fixed head what i have but the one that the one that's got my attention though too i'm not gonna lie man it's that uh ramcat i've been hearing ramcat been talking crazy about that yeah. Oh, man. They, they fly great, too. I've got a, I'm telling myself a little bit here, but a pretty extensive collection of broadheads in my basement. But that goes back to just what I was saying. I want to make sure that when when I knock an arrow and I, I come to full draw to take an animal's life, I want to make sure that I'm doing it in the fastest, most efficient way I can. And, you know, when I first started bow hunting years back, you know, I made a couple shots that were, Marginal. Less, than, <laughs> less than marginal, probably. And, and and I had to ask myself some pretty uncomfortable questions and, you know, kind of looking myself in the mirror ashamedly after that. And like, you know, did I do everything that I could have done? And there was a situation I won't go into here, but, you know, I had to do some things to put that animal down that, it stays with me, you know, and it's like, God, that was rough. And and I don't want to do that again. That animal deserves better than that. And, you know, me as a hunter, I, I feel like I deserve better than that. And I want to eliminate variables. Don't get me wrong. I'm out there to take an animal's life, but I'm taking it because I want to eat it. And I'm also taking it because it's a great connection to my roots and upbringing in rural Missouri. And although I live in in big city now, it's still my way of connecting, you know, and I don't want anything to tarnish that feeling. And I don't want any variables that might affect that negatively. So, and and we've been talking about variables all night, but, 
one of those variables, to be honest, is a moving part. And there's so many moving parts on this modern equipment. You know, why does the arrow and the broadhead need to be that complicated? I get it. You know, it, yeah. it, let's simplify this process to where we've got a pointy thing on the end of the stick that hits where we want it to. And as long as we do that, everything else is going to take care of itself. And, and that's kind of why I'm going back to that that fixed-point head. I've got uh, those Wacoms I was talking about. Those things fly great. They have that, that trocar tip. But, you know, is that a cut on contact? I, I, I guess so, because it's I cut myself just on the tip of that thing. <laughs> yeah, so this thing's the real deal. I'm pretty excited about that head um, right now, but... You know, and they're not paying me to say that. That's just a head that I found online. I ordered from them for, I think, like $34 shipped, and then I got four of them. That's good. That's a great price. Right? <laughs> that, that's what I, you know, you, you go into the store and you can't touch anything decent for under 40 and that's that's driving into the store and picking it up yourself. This just showed up at my door for me for for less than that, and I got, an ex, got one more head than you usually do. It's like three so, to use and one to test. Exactly, and that's exactly what I did. I uh, painted the ferrule. I used a little uh, nail, my wife's nail polish to paint it red on that ferrule so I could identify it easily as my practice head. That's awesome. But, uh, well, you know, Tommy, this was a very good podcast, a great episode. I mean, you to me, I know you're saying that there's probably people that know more, but from where I'm at, you're leaps and bounds to where I've been. And I learned so much tonight over you know, the different types of paper tuning to even the uh, modified French tuning. And these things I actually, I want to try out. And I, I do appreciate the time. I know we kind of went longer than the, the idea of like around 30, 40 minutes, but honestly, everything about it was great. I've learned so much. Well, thank you. I mean, I had a great time. And, and the thing is, is if anybody out there who's listening to this you know, wants to try this stuff out. Like I say, don't take my word for gospel. There is so much great stuff online that you can look up and, and get yourself going in the right direction. And the best advice I could give to anybody who's, who's wanting to get into this is start at the shop level. You know, if you don't have a good shop, find one. And it may mean you have to drive a couple hours to do it, but so what? It's, you know, make a day trip of it and go have fun. It's one of those things that having a great shop, doing the research and putting in the time now or earlier yeah. will pay off in great dividends later. Too many guys start, oh, man, deer season's a month away. I better, you know, a week or two before they're all clamoring into the shops trying to get their stuff set up to make sure it's right. And, and my thought is, was like, dude, haven't you been shooting for the last six months? And if not, is that really fair to the animal you plan to take? You know, so that's my two cents on that, I guess. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody's hearing that, they should be uh, thinking twice about when they're going to go hunting. It might not be opening day. Maybe they should plan out a little bit further, get that extra time in. I'll be honest, I start my bow set up. Usually around mid-February, early March is when I really start thinking about it because I want to get ready for turkey season, and I want to be ready for when turkey season starts. And if I'm buying a new bow, then I'm going to buy. Uh, I'm going to start in January, you know. But if you know, it's my my equipment. I'm you know I'll put it down because I'll get a little burnout. I'll be honest. I'll shoot. I shoot probably anywhere between. 
250 and 500 arrows a week. That's probably would be a lot more if not for my limited time. You know, I have three little ones. My oldest is four. So my, my, and I, you know, have, I, I coach and I'm a teacher. So, <laughs> you know, get, getting time to, to, to go swing arrows is challenging at best, but you know, I, I, I do shoot a lot. You know, I shoot more than most, but not as much as I want. And I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, I can, I can use, I'll put my bow down, you know, after deer season ends or I'm, I'm done. I'll, 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 I'll hunt hard all the way through November. And then I'll go out a couple of times, three, four times in December. But then, you know, when January hits in Missouri, our archery season ends in, uh, on January 15th. So, you know, I'll usually try to make it a point to be in the tree on the last day, just more for symbolic reasons than anything, just to test my mettle to see how, how tough I am in mid-Missouri <laughs> cold. But, you know, then I'll put it down. I, I won't touch my bow again for, you know, a couple months because I need a break. I need my, my shoulder needs to recover. And, oh, yeah. But, yeah, so I guess the whole point of that was shoot a lot, shoot often, make sure your equipment works right. And don't wait till September to start trying to figure it out. Well, man, uh, thanks again for coming on the show and sharing with uh, the knowledge that you do have. I think it's going to help out a lot of people that are listening. It's definitely helped me. It's something to at least look into more. And uh, it's fascinating. You've actually opened up more questions that I do feel like I'd like to go in, not now, but in maybe a future episode. So hopefully you'd be willing to come back on and maybe dial in further. And um, But again, I do appreciate you taking the time and sharing with us. All right. Thanks a lot. And and uh, if if I can, I would just like to give a little plug to our forum, Blue Collar Bow Hunting. They uh, that's a forum that I'm I'm a member of, and and I tell you what, I have to give those guys credit on there because there's a ton of super knowledgeable guys on there. If you have a question, there is somebody on there that's going to have the answer and probably has had the exact same issue or situation that you have. It's it's truly a family and brotherhood. I mean, guys are sharing with each other and helping each other out. It, it's a really great forum. There's no bashing. We, you know, they don't tolerate any any kind of bashing of equipment or skill level. It's family friendly. You can get on there and trust that you're not going to see a bunch of foul language or inappropriate pictures or or memes or things like that. It's if you're not a member, go go uh, check that page out and get you on there. No, I know it's a closed group. Does that mean, are they able to request being joined or do they have to be invited? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. Because I, I, I was invited. Not... I don't remember exactly who invited me, but I was originally invited into the group. And that's the only thing I remember is that it has know, the invite. I think you can request to join. Well, if not, if it doesn't have that feature, is there a way that someone maybe if they want to you know tackle or you know, pick your brain, is there a way someone can reach out to you directly? Maybe yeah, if anything can, to get yeah, an invite just, to the group. Yeah, just hit me up. Hit me up on Facebook. I'm Tommy Hale. It's H A L E. Uh, look me up, and I can help you get on there. Or, or you know, they could also, you know, I, I guess go through your show too, to in your site. You know, there's a link to it. But yeah, of course. You know that that would be something to check out. Well, man, I hope that uh, we didn't take too much of your time, and uh, I know it's getting kind of late, but I do appreciate you coming on, and uh, thanks again. It was a pleasure. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. All right, so now it looks like I have to build two things. I now need to make a custom arrow spinner. On top of that, now I want to make my own custom paper tuning system. Having Tommy on and sharing with us what's involved with paper tuning and the other options of tuning out there 
it is impressive how much knowledge he really does have. And I'm so glad that we were able to get him on the show and share with us what he had to offer. Because if you want to do any type of paper tuning or the different type of tuning methods that he was suggesting, he gave you some great advice, especially some of the things that you don't necessarily hear or see when you search for it on the web. So this was great. As you heard, I met him through a Facebook group. It's called Blue Collar Bowhunting. And as he was saying, you can find him on Facebook, or if you'd like, go to our show notes at mybowrush.com forward slash 024, and we'll have a link giving you direct access to that page so you can ask for an invite. Now, I want to go into and say this. If you enjoyed this episode, and if you've enjoyed any of the other ones, if you could take a moment, go to mybowrush.com forward slash iTunes. It'll take you straight to our iTunes account. And what I would really like if you could do is give us a five-star review if you felt like the information that we provided was worth a value. And yes, we're growing our social accounts. I'm trying to spend more time providing some cool things I see on the web so you have some other new things to look at. But if you could, if you haven't followed us yet, go to our Facebook account, our Twitter account, our Instagram account, our Google Plus account. You can find all the links on our website under the follow us link. One of the things that we need your help to do is that if you could share our show with some of your friends, the reasoning for it, the more people we have listen to our show, the more downloads we'll get, the more downloads we get, the more exposure we have. With the more exposure we have, more doors will start to open up and allow us to have access to key people that you want to know information from. So we need your help to do that. We can't do it alone. This is a big team effort. And believe me, you're a part of our team. And I really appreciate you taking the time listening to our show. Hopefully you're learning things because I know I am. Hope you tune in on our next episode, which I believe is going to be with none other than the Obsession Bows. It's another bow manufacturer. So make sure to tune in for that one. And I guess that's it. I'm Travis Stowe, your host of the Bow Rush Podcast. I'm out of here. Take care, you guys.